is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. President Biden and Senate Democrats are doing a victory lap of sorts in Washington. This comes after the Senate passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which they are touting as a major package, which will help the country battle inflation and climate change and will lower prescription drug costs for those on Medicare. We'll go in depth into what's in the bill and what was left out. Police in Albuquerque, New Mexico, they are looking for a potential serial killer who might be targeting Muslim men. And we look back at the life and career of singer and actress Olivia Newton-John. She passed away today at the age of 73. We'll go back to Ukraine, the war part of everyday life. We'll speak with a woman who's doing her best to get by, even took her trip to her hometown recently near the Russian border. If you're worried about climate change and catching some kind of nasty disease, there's a new study that has some bad news for you. Connecting diseases to climate change. We'll talk about that. And then uh, Barbie. We know Barbie, a doll, and there's a movie coming out, but also a big influencer on fashion. And uh, her fashion is all the rage right now. Mm. We start, though, with the Inflation Reduction Act. Josh Wingrove is the White House reporter for Bloomberg. Josh, thanks for being with us. So in this segment, we're talking first about what we all get out of this bill. What do we get? What are some of the things? Well, uh, immediately, you know, not a whole lot. (laughs) Some of this stuff will take effect over the coming Years, things like uh, Medicare negotiating drug pricing. Uh, there's a lot of climate provisions and incentives in it. Uh, the, the money that it's raising is it, aimed in part at corporations by setting a minimum tax. In other words, big corporations, those that make more than a billion bucks, wouldn't be able to write down their taxes to zero under this change. The bill hasn't passed yet it's fully. It still needs to go through the House, although it's expected to. You know, and this is uh, some measures of stuff that was in the Build Back Better proposal that collapsed last December when Senator Joe Manchin pulled the plug on that. And then, of course, it was Manchin who came back with this proposal and they sort of haggled through to get it across the board. Now, this is called the Inflation Reduction Act because all laws seem to need titles like that these days. It doesn't really have all that much of an effect on inflation either way. Most analysis analyses show it'll cur- bend the curve on inflation downward under its help, but not by a whole lot and not all that quickly. And so in the meantime, I think we'll be expecting more interest rate hikes from the Federal Reserve to try to curb the inflation rate we're seeing here in the U.S. So how do they try and sell this thing as a huge positive if it's not as big as what they were hoping to get through all the last couple of years? Well, it's better than nothing, I guess, is what they'll sell it as. I mean, Biden, Biden uses as one of four sort of bills that they've passed that they want to argue for re-election for in these midterm elections. The first one was that rescue plan, the COVID uh, bill that passed in the early days of his presidency. You remember $1,400 checks for a lot of people, a lot of households. Uh, and then came that infrastructure bill, a bipartisan bill. And then this earlier this summer, a uh, semiconductor chips bill, which essentially tries to make those tiny computer chips here in the U.S. rather than in places like China, and now this one. So those are the four legs of the stool. If you're Joe Biden, that's what they want to send Democrats into midterm elections with. Now, midterms are generally brutal for parties that are in power. They were brutal for Donald Trump. They were brutal for Barack Obama. And a lot of people don't expect President Biden to do all that well or Democrats to do all that well in these midterms. And so this this could be it in terms of his uh, the, for for a while, at least, his economic legacy. So we'll, we'll see. But, you know, they will point to a lot of stuff in here that people, uh, uh, the polls have shown are pretty popular, things like lower drug prices, 
other stuff that did not make the cut. Well, we're, we're going to oh, hold, hold, we're, we're get into the stuff the we didn't get later. But, but let me ask you this, though. Uh, a lot of stuff in it for people. Uh, yes. But there's also stuff in it that's kind of good for the planet, right? Yes, this is the biggest climate bill arguably ever uh, passed by the U.S. Congress. It's also much smaller than Joe Biden wanted. So this is a classic sort of litmus test about if you think climate change is an existential threat, and you wanted a big bill. This is what this is what they got, and so you have to decide whether this was enough uh, uh, for you. So yeah, there are clean energy incentives here. But remember, Joe Manchin helped strike this deal in the first place. Senator for West Virginia, pretty heavy coal state, for instance. Um, and so uh, a lot of these energy provisions in this bill are but are clean energy incentives, but there's also conventional energy stuff in there as well. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but you'll see Democrat, all the climate hawks, Democrats love this thing. You will see them shouting it from the rooftops that this is the biggest bill, but they're going to be doing that in the campaign where they want to add seats so they can do more. Josh Wingrove, White House reporter for Bloomberg. Well, Democratic lawmakers are happy about the bill. Some of their supporters are not entirely thrilled. There were some potential benefits for parents and diabetics. They were excluded. With us to try to explain is Jonathan Lemire, White House Bureau Chief of Politico and host of MSNBC's morning news show, Way Too Early. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. So this isn't the Build Back Better. It's kind of the Build Back Kind of Better Act, right? Uh, What are we not getting that certainly the more left wing of the Democratic Party wanted? We'll start by saying, of course, this is a significant and sort of stunning triumph for the Democrats, who a few weeks ago looked like they're going to get nothing. So certainly there are cheers throughout the party that many of the party's priorities uh, will uh, come into law, assuming the House passes it later this week as expected, and then it will go to President Biden's desk. But you're right, it is a much smaller bill uh, than what had been bandied about last year, the so-called Build Back Better Act. Uh, a few key parts that have dropped out. Certainly there was the extension of the child tax credit. That's no longer happening. Uh, in the 11th hour, uh, an effort to cap insulin at $35, that fell out after some Republican opposition. Uh, there was also even the effort to get rid of the carry interest tax uh, loophole, uh, and that was Kirsten Cinema, the senator from Arizona, who vociferously opposed that and said her you know, support uh, of the bill as a whole was conditional on that falling out. So it did. Uh, so it's a win for Democrats, no question, uh, but not as big as they initially hoped. Why was there the, the Republican opposition to the cheaper insulin? Well, you have to ask a lot of Republicans that. Some of them, they're saying that they feel that they simply the federal government should be playing a role uh, in this, that, that they feel that the, you know, the drug companies uh, should be negotiating this on their own. But I think it's become a political landmine here, where they now have to explain to voters that they oppose something that so many of their constituents need and use and would benefit from. Democrats I've spoken to in the last few days say they feel like this adds to the list of things that happened in the last week or two that they feel like could be effective wedges this fall, with Republicans also in recent days, at least temporarily, uh, fought against a act that would better manufacture computer chips here at home in an effort to combat, uh, to rival China, uh, as well as the burn pit legislation, the you know, toxic fumes in Iraq and Afghanistan that made so many veterans ill. Um, both of those measures did pass, but a lot of Republicans stood against it, even though they enjoy broad popular support. Uh, to go back for a minute to the medical issues. So as I understand it, uh, in the bill, uh, Medicare 
recipients will benefit by having the government initially starting with a few drugs and then expanding it, right, negotiate the prices. There will also be a $2,000 cap on what senior citizens will be able, uh, will have to pay for, for drugs. But those were measures that, again, the more uh, uh, left wing of the party wanted to include for people who have private insurance, right, uh, insurance through their job or, or Obamacare. That is now not in. So couldn't this really backfire? Because if I'm a drug company, if I can't get my money now from senior citizens, aren't I going to just turn around and get it from everybody else? It's entirely possible. And you're right to point out that senior citizens now enjoy these protections, uh, but not everyone. I mean, the insulin cap has been a long-running ambition of Democrats who indeed wanted to apply it to both Medicare and private insurance. There is some thought we spoke to, in fact, one of my many day jobs, spoke to Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut earlier today, who said that he believes this could be something that is revisited down the road, whether it be later this year uh, when the Senate reconvenes this fall, more likely sometime next year when we see who has control, perhaps, of the upper chamber. Uh, but there, in the short term, there could be some costs uh, passed along to private consumers. That's certainly a fear. Democrats, though, they think that this is an issue that will animate voters along with many others, uh, to turn out against Republicans this fall. Republicans counter, of course, by saying they think inflation remains top of mind for voters and they still feel bullish about their chances. Jonathan Lemire, White House Bureau Chief for Politico and MSNBC's uh, morning news show, Way Too Early. Coming up, singer and actress Olivia Newton-John has died at the age of 73. We'll take a look back at her life and long career in the music world and a hot new fashion trend is being led by the world's most famous doll. Right now, though, investigators in Albuquerque, New Mexico, trying to solve murder mysteries surrounding the shooting deaths of four Muslim men over the past several months. Most recent happened Friday. The investigators have been puzzled, but the pieces, they might be coming together now. Tommy Lopez has been following the case. reporter and anchor at KOB4 TV in Albuquerque. Uh, Tommy, thanks for being with us. So what are they saying about how these may be linked? Yeah, Charles and Mike, thank you for covering this issue. Police have given some information, but they are choosing to keep a lot of these details secret. They say that's for the sake of the investigation. We do know that, as you said, four Muslim men have been shot and killed. The three most recent have all been killed in the last two weeks over a 12-day span. They are all born in Pakistan. We're living here in Albuquerque. We're all killed at night. And from a combination of what police have said and from speaking to members of the Muslim community, they were all ambushed. They were killed without warning. And no one seems to know why. And as far as uh, as you know, is there other than that they all are from uh, Pakistan and all Muslim? Is there any other connection that is known uh, between all of them? No, uh, uh, many of them attended the large mosque here, but this mosque has 10,000 members. Some of them had mutual friends. We know people who have known two or more of them. Um, but no, th these homicides did occur in somewhat of a, a targeted area, but it's not, it's not just a couple of blocks. It goes from an area where there's the University of New Mexico into another area that is residential, so police are trying to put this together. They say they are getting leads, but all they're saying right now is they are possibly connected to homicides of these four men and that there is likely one suspect responsible or multiple suspects. And they put out like a vehicle description, which is good that there's something to look for. But also that doesn't if that's all that's out there, it's, it's not making people feel great or safe. 
Exactly. That's all that's out there. They, about 24 hours ago, released that. They're not saying whether it is a suspect vehicle. They are saying it's a vehicle of interest and they would like the public's help. They are also stopping short of calling this case a serial killer case, even though we continue to ask those questions. And many in the community fear that that is what we have. And look, people in the Muslim community are absolutely terrified. They don't know who to look for. They don't know how to avoid being in danger, but many are trying to stay in groups, not go out at night. Some are afraid right now to leave their houses. The city of Albuquerque is actually helping get meals to people who might be in that situation. Is this all being handled by local law enforcement or is there federal involvement as well? It's a lot of uh, agencies that are helping. Albuquerque's police are leading all of this, but the FBI have said they are involved. They will not tell us the extent of their resources. Other police departments that are in the metro area are involved as well as state police. So there are a lot of investigators, uh, we believe, a lot of resources being put into this. There are many ways people can submit tips. They can do so in person at various locations and by calling and by messaging. Uh, these investigators are urgently pleading with the community to help give information. And I imagine at that mosque you mentioned and others, uh, extra security? Extra security and uh, just a feeling of, of being heartbroken and terrified and just what an awful combination for the hundreds and hundreds of people in the Muslim community and friends and family and for all of us in Albuquerque to just not know what's going to happen next. Tommy Lopez, reporter, anchor, KOB4 Television in Albuquerque. Sad news out of the music and entertainment world. Uh, death of singer and actress Olivia Newton-John died this morning at her home here in California. 73 years old, career spanned decades, five number one hits and ten top ten hits. Now, many people also knew her for her role as Sandy in Greece. Newton-John also had a long and public battle with breast cancer. With us now is Jim Aswad, senior music writer for Variety. Jim, thanks for being with us. She had a, a remarkable career, and it's interesting. You know, I'm thinking back to uh, Greece. She wasn't clearly, uh, based on what the play was on Broadway, the person that one would have thought would have been okay for the role, but she was the one the producers really wanted. Um, it, it's, you know, uh, as someone who was a teenager at the time, uh, with a huge crush on her, it's not that hard to understand why, but she really <laughs> delivered in the role. You know, I mean, she was able to be both sides of that character in what was really a very, you know, it was a musical, so it was kind of cartoonish. But, you know, she played the, you know, the, the, the adorable, innocent, you know, young blonde girl and then when she put on the leathers and the afro she pulled that off too so it was really quite an impressive turn you know for someone you know she had acted before but that was a very high profile role and she really nailed it i saw some quotes going around earlier today and they were focusing on greece and one of the things she said was i wasn't sure i wanted to do another movie because the last one i did wasn't very good and my music career was going so great I didn't want another bad one, <laughs> and then it would mess it all up. And then some of the early reviews were saying, you know what, that youthful innocence thing, it was like a like a 70s Debbie Reynolds. Completely, yeah. Yeah, there was there was definitely innocence there, but, you know, I mean, she turned it on its head with the, uh, you know, with the later role in there. And, you know, she reprised it again in Xanadu, which I thought, you know, which I thought was also um, a great, a great, a uh, spot for her and a great follow-up to it. You know, without being a carbon copy of Greece, it showed that she could still do this. You sort of touched on, on this in your first answer, but do you think that, that her fame as an artist was built primarily on 
her art, uh, her her vocal abilities, her acting abilities, or was it mostly her sex appeal? Um, you know, it, it it almost feels like sex appeal is a misnomer there because you know because she did look so innocent and uh, the, like I, I speaking with people that I work with, I was kind of surprised because to me, owing to the era when I grew up, to me all I think about with her music is just that long string of frankly rather schmaltzy cult country singles that she put out in the 70s, you know, Have You Never Been Mellow and um, Let Me Be There and all kinds of songs like that, which I quite honestly liked all that much, but everybody else remembers her as a pop star. Um, You know, so I think that she, her career touched a lot of different areas. I don't think there would, that Keith Urban would have had the career that he had as an Australian country singer had she not gone gone there first long before him and and you know you can't even calculate the influence she had as a pop singer especially with physical which which is actually her biggest hit you know and add that to xanadu and the songs from greece it's actually quite a diverse career it was funny about xanadu you know some people it, it, it either didn't degrade the box office or it's, it's been years since the songs outlast the movie you could have not seen the movie but you know xanadu the song for some reason and it probably comes from a movie and then you know magic Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing. So it's really, I I feel like her career has been underrated, her musical career. And of course, she's done, she did so much over the years for breast cancer awareness, and she has a foundation um, that that raises money for it, because it really um, hampered the last 20, 25 years of her life, I believe. Yeah, I was going to say, had it not been for her, her illness, uh, she could have gone off in many other directions. Could she not have in terms of artistic endeavors? Oh, completely. You know, I mean, she could have been, you know, she certainly would have been touring regularly if she'd wanted to. Um, and she could have done more movie roles. I mean, she could have had a talk show and, and all this stuff. And instead, she channeled that in, that energy into breast cancer awareness. And, and she didn't have to, you know. I mean, a lot of the time when people become ill like that, they just... They, they, you know, go inward, which is totally fine and totally understandable. Um, but I think it's really to her credit that she used her fame to increase awareness and raise money for something that was that she may have been able to afford treatment for, but others don't. Jim Oswald, senior music writer for Variety. Remembering Olivia Newton-John, dead at 73. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. The war in Ukraine drags on as military analysts say the next phase of fighting is likely to focus on the southern part of the country. There are concerns in Russian-occupied areas about a lack of running water and how that could turn into a humanitarian crisis. This war nearly six months old, people adjusting the best they can. Valeria works in IT, fled Kiev early in the war, just recently visited her hometown in the northeast part of the country, very close to the Russian border. Valeria, thanks for being back with us. So what was taking that trip like for you, and what did you see when you got there? Uh, yeah, hi. Um, well, uh, I went to visit my grandma for the first time ever since the war has started. She has been staying there all the time. She refused to leave. So she lives like 10 kilometers from the border. Uh, it was all quiet and peaceful for like five hours. And then the shooting started somewhere really nearby. So we heard explosions. And then later that night, we learned that the neighboring city was bombed, actually, by Russian troops. 
Uh, luckily, no one was hurt. But the day after that, when I already left, uh, a woman was killed uh, in the village that is near my grandma's village. We've uh, periodically talked to people uh, like yourself in Ukraine since uh, the Russians invaded a few months back uh, to kind of get a sense of what the mood in the country is like. Uh, What do you think, based on your own friends and family, what is the kind of general mood in the country now? Uh, I would say it hasn't changed much ever since the beginning of war. Uh, It's still a fight mode. It still supports our army mode, and um, luckily our government does a lot um, to teach us about the propaganda and all the things that Russia is doing on the social media and uh, sometimes in the Western media and in our media to kind of um, make things seem worse than it is. Uh, So people here um, are doing a great job refusing that. Uh, and fighting that. So I would say that we're still united and people are, as said, in a fight mode slash wait mode for this all to be over some years <laughs> in the future. How surreal is that to go through and, and to think about this maybe continuing even that long? I mean, trying to, to work, I assume, because we said you work in IT, worrying about your grandma, yeah. who's that close to the border, um, trying to do your part to help, and then listening to what you were just saying, you know, taking the, the, the nod from the government saying, uh, this is how you prepare, this is what to ignore, uh, and doing all that at the same time. Yeah, it, it is quite surreal, to be honest. And uh, to be honest, sometimes I forget that it is surreal. And then I'm in a meeting with my colleagues from Israel, from America, and we're just discussing, like, work stuff. Then I get a call from my brother, who is in the front line, and I'm like, oh, sorry, I have to take that. I have to interrupt our meeting to just get to know that he is okay, because he, he is, um, most of the time he is, doesn't have service, so he cannot call us. And whenever he calls, I have to pick up. And then I have to go back to the meeting uh, doing, like, silly IT stuff again. So, yeah, yeah, that does feel surreal most of the time. Do you ever think in a serious way about about leaving? Um, No, no. Uh, I'm not planning on that, except if we see clear signs that Russia is planning to use nuclear power, uh, nuclear bombs or whatever. Uh, There are rumors now, not even rumors, but there is some general from Russia who reported that they have mined um, a nuclear plant in Zaporizhia. So we are kind of waiting for that to be, um, I don't know, not over, but like to get, uh, to figure out what is going on. Are are they going to, uh, to do something about it or not? And this is the only case that I am seeing for myself and my fiance uh, to leave the country only if there is a nuclear threat. You think they would be crazy enough to to do something like that? I think that if they're desperate enough, it might be, especially with Putin. Putin, (laughs) sorry for the the confusion, but so Putin uh, has put nuclear bombs in Belarus. And we do suspect that he might be using that against us or maybe some other Western countries. We're not sure yet, but that is quite disturbing when he's putting uh, nuclear power in the non-nuclear state. You mentioned your fiancé. I don't know when you were planning or are planning to get married, but this must be, you know, really wreaking havoc with your plans. Yeah, 
did that. We were we were planning to get married on the 23rd of September. Uh, obviously, it's not going to happen now, uh, both because we have spent a lot of our savings to uh, help the army, our families, uh, and all other people in need, and also because I don't see how we can have fun and celebrate anything during this time. Like, I mean, we are celebrating small things, some small family gatherings, birthdays, and all of that. But I really want my our special day to be special, not because it is a war outside, but because it is special because we're getting married. You mentioned your brother also uh, near the front line or on the front line. Is he close there living or is he fighting? He's fighting. He's in the army. He volunteered on the first day, so he is not an army man. He uh, worked um, somewhere else. Uh, so on the first day, he, he, volunteered to, he volunteered to go there. Uh, first, he was in a local defense in uh, Sumi region. And I don't know uh, how much Americans know about the Sumi region local defense, but they were quite heroic. And they, for the most part, are the reason that uh, Russian troops have left that region. <clears throat> uh, so when they left, uh, he was taken to Donbass region to fight. And he's staying uh, there right now. What has surprised you the most about the past almost six months? I'm sorry, I left you for a minute. Yeah, I, I said, what What over the past six months has surprised you the most? People, people of Ukraine. You know, um, I'm 27 years old, and I always knew and I always seen that our people are really good people. They're, like, hostile. Uh, they're helping whenever someone is in need. But we always had quarrels about the language, about the culture, uh, about who wants to be friends with whom. Uh, and to be honest, I never expected everyone to be as united as we are still uh, ever since the beginning of war. I mean, we do have like some internal conflicts, but they're not significant at all. And if someone needs help, then we gather together and we get things done. For example, as I mentioned, my brother is on the front line. And he really needed, uh, his team really needed a thermal imager to see uh, enemy in the dark. And it costed something around $3,000. And we collected money for that from people that I don't even know uh, in like four to five days. And in Ukraine, it's like a big deal to collect that sum of money in such a short term of time. And as I said, of course, it were my colleagues, my family, my friends, friends of friends. But for most part, people that I have never met and I don't even know, they were donating from like 50 cents to $500. And it was amazing. I'm really thankful for them. And uh, this is, again, something that amazes me to this day. We've been at war for six months and economical situation in the current country is not really good. And a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people lost their savings or donated a lot to the army and they keep donating. And we are still capable of doing like collecting that sum of money in such a short term of time. Valeria, thank you so much for speaking to us. Our best wishes to you, to your grandma, brother, fiance, and uh, we'll be in touch again soon. Valeria there fled to Kiev in the early days of the war, just went north to uh, visit her grandmother for the first time since all this got started. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. If you think all the diseases floating around are bad now, wait until climate change gets even worse. New study finds climate hazards like flooding, droughts, heat waves have made infectious diseases worse. Doctors have long linked weather to diseases, but this study seems to show just how connected they all are. 
With us is one of the study's authors, Eric Franklin, director of the Franklin Lab at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology at the University of Hawaii. Eric, thanks for being with us. So what exactly is this connection between climate change and, I guess it's what, infectious diseases in particular, right? Yeah, so we looked at uh, basically the known or, you know, we, we organized an authoritative list of the known pathogenic diseases for humans. And we compared basically a list of 10 primary climate hazards to see if there was a connection there, meaning would they aggravate or even diminish some of these diseases. The way we collected information is we did a, a basically as comprehensive as possible. We looked at over 77,000 published titles and reviewed them for any connection that we saw between uh, the climate and, and these pathogenic diseases and also identified the potential transmission pathways. So these are, you know, vectors or waterborne, airborne, foodborne. And I got to say, our team was really shocked by the outcome that um, over half of these uh, diseases had some connection where uh, a climate hazard or climate change would make them worse. Can you give us some examples of some of those pathways? Yeah. So, I mean, a, a pathway, would, I can I can start from the beginning. So if, if you have a climate hazard, so if you have, say, you know, a warming and increased precipitation, that's going to lead to mosquito outbreaks. Those are a vector that's potentially going to lead to outbreaks of any of a list of diseases that mosquitoes carry. These are things that would be expected to increase as the, the planet warms and these sort of, uh, you know, climate hazards increase. And this is literally just one of, you know, we found 218 diseases where there were these negative impacts to be predicted. Well, I was going to say, is this all uh, predictive or are these things, or at least many of these things already happening? Yeah, so the study looked at uh, published work, which means these things have happened. So we looked to just see, is there a relationship between these climate hazards and the diseases historically? And then by association, we've done some other work that looks at the predicted changes in these hazards in the future from climate effects, and then extrapolated that, okay, these things are also going to increase as, as the weather changes. Wasn't there a few years back, like an anthrax outbreak that started when something old defrosted there was yeah so this is um from permafrost in the arctic region uh and i believe some of the sources are potentially from reindeer carcasses that there was some concern that the permafrost starting to thaw out was now going to release a, a whole host of things that had basically been frozen for for quite a while and anthrax was one of them so is there a a from a medical point of view a short-term fix for this because the long-term fix for the environment, well, is just that it's long-term. Yeah. It's, so really the, the, the point of the paper is, is twofold. One, it's to bring greater attention to the detail of all the potential interactions that we'll um, observe from these climate hazards and particular diseases. And to help that along, we created an online web application that includes all of our results. And so we're hoping that health, health practitioners and, and even the general public that's interested in this um, will go to that interactive webpage and, and learn more and actually be able to drill down to a particular hazard, a particular disease, and, and see what the sources were that we used. The second is this is just another, you know, really a clarion call that we're, we're in the midst of um, a, a very serious tragedy that's occurring that we need to immediately find uh, as many options as we can to minimize uh, greenhouse gas emissions globally. Do you think more people are finally starting to realize that, that this is not a someday thing, that you're feeling the effects of it right now? 
Yeah, I think I think some of the extreme weather we've been experiencing across the country and globally is, is just yet another indicator that, you know, it's it's not the future we're talking about. It's not now. And, and these changes will become, uh, unfortunately, more and more prevalent. Along with them, we're expected then to see these these human disease and uh, pretty significant negative health implications along. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, uh, the paper, as I understand it, looks at existing uh, infectious diseases and whether they're being exacerbated by uh, climate change. Are we also more likely to see the emergence of new infectious diseases that one could directly correlate to uh, climate change? Yeah, that, that's also, you know, a possibility. At, at this point, this study, you know, kind of gives us a, a, a framework of what's what we know. And um, it's, you know, as you know, it's hard to predict the future, but the possibility of things emerging that we don't even anticipate is is definitely likely. And so this is almost a, a baseline of what we can expect and things may be even actually worse than what we're predicting here. Eric Franklin, director of the Franklin Lab, the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology, University of Hawaii. Have you seen a lot more pink lately? Not just the lighter pink. We're talking the in-your-face hot pink that you just can't miss. And if you have... It's because of Barbie. Yeah, she's apparently the reason behind the fashion trend this summer. Celebrities rocking hot pink, even big designer brands getting in on this. They're calling it Barbiecore. With us is fashion expert Maggie Adhemi Boynton, CEO and founder of Shop Thing. Maggie, thanks for being here. So I'm on your website, and you've got shoppers that go out and find deals for people. Are they bringing back a lot more hot pink? Oh, they certainly are. I mean, you cannot deny when Valentino has an entire fall runway with head-to-toe monochromatic fuchsia. So we are definitely bringing a lot of that barbecue to our app these days. And has hot pink always been associated with Barbie? I mean, I think a lot of different shades of pink are associated with Barbie. I will say I think it is a fusion of Barbie and pink combined with that genius Valentino event that has really driven people crazy for fuchsia this season. Was it already becoming like the color of the summer or did the pictures from the Barbie movie help? Because when they put out Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling as Barbie and Ken, people on the Internet like went crazy. Oh, this, I mean, this Barbie core movement is only, believe it or not, only about five weeks old, uh, and it's already taken over the internet. Uh, we had been seeing pops of color for sure, definitely not only isolated to Fuchsia. Fuchsia was a big movement, movement that came from the Valentino show combined with the new Barbie movie, and it's just, it's been crazy. Now, are we talking just about apparel or accessories, too, that are hot pink? Oh, everywhere. And it's not just one piece. We're talking head to toe, full fuchsia outfits for women and men. So you're seeing it everywhere. It is a full on Barbie craze. What does it take to pull that off? Because you got people going, no, I'm more of a blue or a gray. Thanks. (laughs) What do I do with hot pink? I will tell you, anybody can pull this off. And the nice thing about these head-to-toe monochromatic looks is you can actually mix multiple shades. So it doesn't have to be the exact same shades of pink. You can have a light pink with a fuchsia, you know, with a muted pale dusty rose. You can really mix all different shades and still have a really beautiful elevated elevated look. You know, it's funny you mentioned uh, that it's for men, too. I, I have this pink T-shirt, or at least people call it pink. And they say, oh, you look good in the paint. But I insist on calling it salmon. Am I right? (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, it's probably salmon, uh, but you can now, you know, get yourself a beautiful fuchsia shirt and tell people you're, you know, really hip and on this barbecue trend. He's rocking the fuchsia. Oh, wow. He's going to, it's going to come in tomorrow. How does this, how does this actually get started and then spread? You mentioned Valentino. So obviously like big designers will do something and people will notice, but like when that happens, do the TikTokers and the Instagram people, do the influencers start posting like them wearing it and then it trickles down to everybody else? It's exactly that. A whole bunch of celebrities got on board from Kim Kardashian, Lizzo, and Hathaway was actually at the Valentino show. And so once people started seeing that full monochromatic pink look, the internet just went crazy. Influencers were wearing it. TikTok exploded. Um, and that's that's kind of how trends get started these days. It starts with the influencers and the celebrities and, and trickles down to us. Has this thing with with Barbie fashion happened before? I mean, she's been around. She doesn't look her age, but she's been around for like 60 years, right? She's been around for a long time. We've seen multiple movements of pink. I have never, you know, in my many short years, I won't tell you how many, but I've never witnessed this full fuchsia moment. So I think this is a first for us. Uh, But there's definitely been many different eras where pink has been the highlight. Does everything come back once in a while, like every 20 or 30 years? Because it's cyclical, right? So is this like an 80s or a 90s kind of nostalgia that's coming back? Because I remember like these colors back then. It's exactly that. I'm sure you remember the neons and the highlighter, you know, greens and the yellows. Exactly that. It's coming back around those massive platform heels that uh, I wore as a teen are now making, you know, headways everywhere. I mean, are there people who just don't look good and shouldn't wear pink? I don't think so. I love pink. I think everybody looks good in pink. In fact, our logo is pink, so we were ahead of the time. You're biased then. <laughs> I'm very biased. <laughs> when when these nostalgia things get going, who is buying the nostalgia stuff? Is it people who lived through it then? Or because here, here's what I'm curious about. Like, is Gen Z wearing 90s stuff when they weren't here for the 90s? They don't know anything about it. Oh, I will tell you this. They champion those trends more than us 90s kids do because we lived through like the pain and the torture of low-rise jeans. <laughs> Gen Z is obsessed with low-rise jeans and we're trying to explain to them why they were terrible, but you know, they don't get it. So, yes, they're they're championing all the trends. The youth. What are you going to They don't know. They don't know what they don't know. Yeah, I wonder if it's going to also sort of transcend fashion. I wonder if people are going to like start painting. Maybe they are. Are they painting like their rooms hot pink? They probably will. I'm sure we'll see cars that are hot pink and all sorts of other types of accessories. We should do that in the studio. We should paint the studio hot. We should paint this anything, but hot pink pink would be really good. Lighten it up a little bit in here. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to tell us what you think is is next around the corner? Do you want to make like a fashion prediction so we can all be ahead of the curve here? Oh, man, there are so many things. I would say look to anything 90s. All of that 90s nostalgia is coming back. Um, I personally think emo will be the next big thing that comes back really hard uh, because I was a big part of the 90s and Gen Z love 90s. I remember the emo kids. All right. Maggie Edhammy Boynton, CEO, founder of Shop Thing. Maggie, thanks. Do you have it? I've mentioned I have my my pink salmon. I have like a light pink. Yeah. I don't have a hot though. So it's a little too loud for me, I think. Too loud? But she says we can pull it off. That's what she says. So we we should try it and see what happens. (laughs) Something to Twitter near you. Yeah, see if we burn through the radio. (laughs) All right. More in-depth tomorrow.